So I was getting ready um, the other morning. I was making breakfast, and um, all of my children, as happens every morning, I promise, they were all playing happily together, just contentedly. There was no fighting. Who laughed? Why'd you laugh? <laughs> but Asa and Naomi in particular, were, um, they were really into some uh, kind of imaginative play of some sort. They had these little toy, wooden toy cars, and there were these little wooden, like, painted house block things, and and they were driving around, and there were clearly like people in their imaginations because the people were talking to one another. And Asa has this little car, and it must have been the driver of the car who started saying, and I hear Asa's voice say, I'm a poet. I'm a poet. And I'm like, I mean, obviously he's a brilliant three-year-old, you know. But I, I was, you know, poets are not a central character in Asa's imagination, on a very regular basis. So I'm a little, you know, what's, what's going on here? But then sure enough, it happens again. Like, did I miss here? No. I'm a poet. I'm a poet. And the car's driving around. And then it all became clear because the poet said, Yar! Oh, it's a pirate. And I got a little confused. Um, you know, we've been studying through the book of Joshua, and what we've said many, many times, and, and what I think this story illustrates is anytime we're reading scripture, actually it's true, anytime we're reading any literature, as a matter of fact, anytime we're in a conversation with another human being, in order for language to work, context is critical. Context is essential. If, if I didn't understand that Asa was my three-year-old son, that little bit of language would make no sense whatsoever. But the moment the context of him being a three-year-old boy who's still developing in his you know, language and pronunciation, suddenly that whole thing makes perfect sense. And so yet again, we're going to jump into the story of Joshua. And we're going to actually look at a pretty big chunk this morning. We're going to read, uh, we're, not, we're not going to really read, we're going to look at all of chapters 15 through 22, and we're going to fly over it, and we're going to grab uh, three short little snippets of it. But the goal is again to say the significance, the meaning, the importance of these three little passages we're going to look at. We're going to get to that by paying good attention to the context. Before we get to Joshua, though, I want to tell you one more story. And before I do that, I'm going to ask um, the world's best helper to come on up. Uh, Esther, everybody give it up for the world's best helper, my daughter. Esther, thank you. And she's going to, yeah, go ahead. She's going to um, get something ready for me. So uh, this is a story, if you've known me a long time, you might have heard before. I'm going to tell sort of a shorter version of it. Um, the story starts, it's from about, uh, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago. The story starts, um, and, and I was kind of internally, emotionally, uh, I was struggling with disappointment. I was disappointed. Does anybody here know what it's like to be disappointed, to feel, to experience, to sort of be like, and the thing about disappointment is it's not very pleasant or enjoyable. Now, the reason it's a bit odd that I was disappointed is because at this time and place, I happen to have just finished a nine-day backpacking trip through the desert of South Texas, and I was two days into a two-week canoe trip down the Rio, and that happens to be some of the stuff that I actually love doing. So I was in the middle of doing stuff that I loved doing, and yet I was feeling disappointed. Kind of a, a strange mix. But the reason is this. See, I, I love adventure. I love getting out. I love um, maybe pushing my boundaries, uh, you know, maybe depending on who you're talking to, maybe unwisely pushing my boundaries, but you know, that's for another time or place. 
But I just, I love adventure. And I was in the middle of adventure, but even though I was right in the middle of something great that I loved, the thing that I found myself thinking of was that I wanted more. Anybody ever been there? Like, you've got good stuff, but instead of practicing gratitude, contentment, thankfulness for the good you have, instead, you just find yourself wanting even more. I think we actually live in a world infatuated with even more. It seems like instead of gratitude and contentment, our world is default to whenever something good comes along, you know what I want? I want more of it. That's what I actually want. And that's the problem with more, is if all you ever want is more, you never get it. Because then however much you have, more is always more than that. So I'm sitting there, and I'd been processing this sort of internal disappointment. Um, and I'd been processing it with the trip leader, a guy named Ken, and with the 11 others that I was traveling, paddling with. Um, we're going to get, don't worry, we're going to get there. You guys can just keep watching. That's great, though. Um, and I've been sharing, you know, sharing this just struggle. Why is it that I, that I want more? All right, thank you, Esther. Give it one more time. Woo! <laughs> oh, maybe I embarrassed her more than she wanted me to. That's all right. I think she did great, though. Um, um, I've been processing this whole experience, and then I'm sitting one morning, and if you can picture, uh, if you can picture with me, the banks of the Rio, there's some tall, rocky cliffs kind of on both sides of the river, and just a, a, a pretty shallow little bank, and the, the river bank kind of went up sharp, and so I'm sitting with my back against this sandy river bank right on the edge of the water, um, and my instructor, Ken, uh, walks up to me, and he was carrying a little um, half sheet of blue paper, this half sheet of blue paper in particular, and he just handed it to me, and he said, I thought you might be interested in reading this. That's all he said. Very subdued comment. He just kind of handed it to me and said, I thought you might be interested in reading this. And what he gave me, what was on the paper, uh, was uh, a copy of a covenant prayer written by John Wesley, who uh, apparently prayed it regularly throughout his life, if not daily. Um, And I'd like to read to you now the words of this prayer. Wesley wrote, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. And on the top of the little blue piece of paper, um, Ken had written one word in magic marker. The word was adventure. His quiet way of saying, you know, Carl, you are in the middle of doing something that you really love. You love adventures. You love being out. You love challenge, but you're feeling disappointed. Maybe, he suggested by giving me this prayer, maybe that's because you've got a little, a little backwards in your mind. Maybe the real adventure is life itself. Have you, have you ever had an experience like this where 
an experience like this where, you know, for me, being given this prayer and getting sort of a reorientation in my life, having my eyes open to the idea that maybe this thing that I love inside of me, I love hiking or running or backpacking, actually it's an expression of something even bigger. It's an expression of my desire for life itself to be an adventure. I, I look back at this moment. I literally, I keep this, this blue piece of paper. I keep it on my desk under the little piece of glass right there. I look at it pretty much every day. Um, this moment is kind of an anchor moment of my life. Have you, have you had a moment like this that it was foundational, it was formational? You often look back at it. You say, that was a pivotal moment in my life when something significant kind of clicked into place. Here's my observation about these moments. Um, we like to, we often like to put them on pedestals. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm kind of doing it right now. I'm, I'm recalling this moment from 17 years ago that was so powerful it's still in my life and I'm telling it to you because somehow this moment sort of typifies or exemplifies something significant in my life of faith. And, and I don't know what it is, but it's like we, we love to do it. You know, it's like we take the book that we read or we take the prayer that we read and we sort of put it up there and we're like, oh, that's what life is all about. Or maybe you got a picture of it, like I have a picture that my daughter Naomi painted for me, and I'm like, oh, man, that moment when she gave me that picture, and I loved it. Or maybe you have like a trinket. I have this rock, and there's a story, but whatever. You've got trinkets like this as well. We take these moments, and we like to put them on a pedestal. Have you ever done this? You've, you've, taken, you've taken something and, and, and you've made it so shiny and beautiful and perfect in your mind and you think about it. Now, on the one hand, good. Those formational moments we should remember, we should hold on to, we should uh, let them continue to form us in a meaningful way. But on the other hand, we're going to read through Joshua 15 through 22 and I think these, the stories from these chapters are going to suggest a, a danger that comes when we focus too much on the pedestal moments of our life. So I'd even invite you, try to call to mind, what, I just shared one of my pedestal moments. I just shared a really formative moment in, in this blue piece of paper, and actually each of these things has its own story to it. Try to call to mind, what are some of the, what are some of the moments for you in your life? Those stories that you find yourself telling that say, man, this is significant in, in my story and who I am. Try to call to mind those pedestal moments. And I want to honor and celebrate them, but I want to look at Joshua and I want to consider maybe uh, a little adjustment to the way we think about who God is and how God is at work in our lives. So um, with that, if you want to open your Bibles to Joshua 15, we're starting uh, the very first verses of Joshua 15 and a brief recap. John uh, preached last Sunday and he did a great job talking about how the first half of the, bi of, of the book of Joshua is all about the conquest of the land of Canaan. God said, I'm going to give you guys land. I'm going to give my people land. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. But now we're in the second half of the book. In the whole second half of the book, the Israelites have more or less taken over the land, and now it's about the right division of the land. And so for chapter after chapter after chapter, we get this really detailed, hard to enjoy and stick with when you're reading it kind of writing. We get page after page after page of writing that looks as a little something like this. The allotment for Judah. The allotment for the tribe of Judah, according to its clans, extended down to the territory of Edom to the desert, desert of Zin in the extreme south. Now, that's just actually the first half of one verse. I'm not even going to read the rest because I, like, I can't even, it's just geographical location after 
like physical landmark detail, and there's 12 tribes. Plus, there's this whole like half tribe of Manasseh thing that gets even more complicated. And it just goes on page after page after page. But like John also said last week, woven in, kind of sprinkled like salt into the middle of these chapters, are a few little vignettes that are so easy to just skip over. And I want to look briefly at three little vignettes that come out of these chapters that give us a pretty, I think, a pretty breathtaking picture of who God is and what God is trying to do in the midst of the lives of his people. And finally, as a, as a, as a final little reminder, we've said that this is a story about a God who wants to bless his people so as to bless all people. This is a story about a God who wants to be, bring a blessing to all people. This is a story about a God who, in that time and place, is constantly challenging and expanding the notions of justice and righteousness and mercy that the world had known that day. And it's a God who wants to do it through a particular people at a particular time in a particular place. So three little stories we're going to talk about. The daughters of Zelophehad. That's a, that's a man's name. If any of you, you know, are, are thinking about having kids or, or you've got kids who are having grandkids and they're looking for a name, Zelophehad. Just put it on the list. It's a good option. Um, we're going to talk about the daughters of Zelophehad. Um, we're going to talk about the cities of refuge. And we're going to talk about the cities for the Levites. Three topics that you might think to yourself, Carl, that sounds maybe about as interesting as the geography that you had just been reading, but just you wait. We're going to find some pretty exciting stuff. So here we go. Now, Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machur, the son of Manasseh, super too many, uh, had no sons, but only daughters, whose names were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Next slide. They went to Eleazar, the priest, to Joshua, son of Nun, and to the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our relatives. So Joshua gave them an inheritance, along with the brothers of their father, according to the Lord's command. All right, pretty short. Pretty easy to, to miss over, but a couple notes that you may have heard of before. First of all, in ancient times, your ownership of land, and I mean, there's still, you know, a, a fair bit of significance to this in modern times as well, but in ancient times, your ownership of a piece of land was akin to your livelihood. If you don't own land, you basically are, are dependent on others for your livelihood. The ownership of land was a big deal. And the way that land was given from one generation to the next was through men. If I was a male and I had some land, then I have sons. And when I have sons and I die, that my land passes on to my son. So land ownership is a big deal. It's critical for your livelihood. And the only way you own land is if you are a man and then you have sons and you give it to your man. So the beginning of this story would have been immediately like, whoo, hey, you know, waving a flag. Look at this. This is a man, Zelophehad, who had no sons. Therefore, as Canaan was about to be distributed to all the people, the line of Zelophehad was about to be axed, gone, done. The norm, the assumption would be, since Zelophehad had no sons, he would not receive a portion of the land. Therefore, his family would, in effect, cease to be really uh, uh, an established part of the people of Israel. However, it says that his daughters, 
came to Joshua and came to the leadership and said, hey, hold on a second. Um, we actually talked about this because our dad didn't have sons long ago, and he actually, you know, we talked to Moses long ago. And so the backstory is, if you go read the book of Numbers, which you should, just go read the book of Numbers, just for fun, this afternoon. And somewhere in there, I don't remember which chapter is, but you'll find it. It's probably in the 20s somewhere. So just wait till you get to the 20s, you'll find Zelophehad again. Um, or, or you'll find, yeah, you'll find the daughter of Zelophehad. They're talking to Moses, and they go to Moses long ago. They're like, hey, Moses, our dad doesn't have any sons, so when we come into the land, when we come into the land, can we be given the land that our dad should have? The thing that is easy to miss is that this was a bold and radical request. This was potentially unprecedented. This was not the thing that daughters did in that time. The, the, the normal was just like, hey, God, dad's got no sons, that's the end of the story. But the daughters went to Moses and said, hey, can we be included in the distribution of land? And Moses said, yes. Now, do you remember the story of Moses sending the 12 spies to, to look at the land? You know, they're sitting on the other side of the river, and Moses sends 12 spies, and the 12 spies go, and, and all 12 of them come back. Two of them are Joshua and Caleb, and we know that Joshua and Caleb are like, hey, God's got this, because I believe in God, and God's going to be faithful. That's what John preached on last Sunday. It was great. But the other 10 came back, and they're like, oh my gosh. They're like giants in there, and they're just going to squash us. Let's just go back to Egypt. It was better when we were oppressed and enslaved and treated brutally, right? When the daughters of Zelophehad went to Moses, it was a time in the life of the people of Israel when many were doubting whether or not God was going to do what God said he was going to do. And what are the daughters saying? The daughters are coming and saying, when we take over the land, when it happens, can we be included? So while others doubted, these daughters believed that there would be an inheritance. They are setting a standard of faith for God's people at that time. And in connection with that pretty courageous act of faith that they made, they also said, hey, and can we be included? And what Moses said in consultation with the Lord, and then what Joshua made good was, you know what, we're going to do something that isn't done. We're going to give land to the daughters. Which means that thousands of years ago, God was expanding the rights of women in a world that often treated women more like property than anything else. We know that that's true, uh, broadly speaking, throughout ancient history. Women were not just treated like property, they were actually called properly. They were, they were sometimes bought and sold. They called it different things than buying and selling to put a thin veneer of pleasantness on it, but, but women were treated like property. Uh, children were sometimes treated like property, although sometimes children were considered more valuable than women. Sometimes in some ancient Greek texts, uh, slaves were considered more valuable than women. And here in this story is a God who says, I'm going to take the lives of women and elevate their value in a radical and beautiful way. We talked a couple weeks ago about the idea that scripture has a certain trajectory to it. We can see that it's kind of moving somewhere. And this, these few verses, a short little story that you could easily pass over are an example of that trajectory. See, because here is one of the very first pointers to something that would continue to build and grow throughout Scripture, uh, it, it finds its kind of climax, uh, you could argue, in a statement that the Apostle Paul made. Um, if, if the starting point was God chooses to treat women as equals in a small way, the landing point is when the Apostle Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. 
slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, So, first comment on the story of Joshua as we're exploring this theme of joy. Uh, We've we've seen some heavy, some hard stories, right? We've seen some, some stuff that we have to wrestle with, and we've made the argument from ancient context that maybe God really is doing good things in the midst of this. Here's a counterexample of a clear demonstration of a God who wants to bring more equality to all people, and he wants to do that for his people. And we'll see, you'll see throughout Scripture a trajectory of that equality being passed from God's people on to all people. And it started with the very physical land that they were sharing amongst themselves. Second little bit, this is Joshua 20, uh, first verse. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, uh, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. Now, we know that the legal system in the Old Testament was uh, a really significant development. I mean, this is, this is all a, 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 you know, entire, a, a wildly pre-modern society. All of our modern concepts of like law systems and justice and right and wrong are, are very thoroughly developed. In ancient times, that was not very developed at all. Um, we see examples like in, you know, in the Old Testament, there's this pretty well-known phrase that God said, an eye for an eye. And we hear an eye for an eye, and we're like, that's a little weird. I mean, is that just saying, hey, retribution is great. You've got to get even. Well, a lot of ancient scholars would say, actually, eye for an eye was a pretty radical reduction in the type of revenge that would have been common in the day. You can read the story in Samuel about uh, the guy who had his wife stolen, so he murdered 30 men, and then after he murdered 30 men, they came back and murdered his whole family. So he got 500 foxes, tied their tails together, lit their tails on fire. Genius. I don't know how you do that. And burned down an entire field. Ancient cultures were filled with constant escalation of violence. Old Testament laws were some of the most uh, effective at subduing violence. And what we see here is not just a law system designed to establish right, wrong, and legal codes. We actually see God including legal provisions for mercy. If somebody murders somebody else accidentally, and there's some other details on how to determine that, there is written into the law code an opportunity for that person to be forgiven and to find mercy by going to a specific city. Again, it'd be really easy to miss over these few little verses, but we see that woven into the very division of the land itself, we see written into the law code of the day, God trying to say, we are going to be a different sort of people. I want my people to do things in a way that is more merciful and compassionate, more of a blessing to more people than anything else the world knows. One Old Testament scholar, when looking at things like the cities of refuge, when looking at laws like eye for an eye, uh, says it this way. He says, the Old Testament as a whole aims to prevent violence spreading. That's sort of a summary interpretation. When we see what looks brutal to us throughout the Old Testament, ancient people probably would have said that looks like a dramatic reduction in violence of the world. 
Okay, so we've got the division of land, and God is showing his great mercy inherent in the division of land, elevating the rights of women. We've got law codes, and God is writing into the law code intentional provisions for mercy. And then last but not least, we've got a, a pretty long section about the way the Levites are going to be given some land in this division of land. Um, the Levites, as you might remember, are the tribe whose job is to oversee the worship, the religious life of the people of Israel. And here's what we find about the Levites. The towns of the Levites in the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture land. Each of these towns had pasture lands surrounding it, and this was true for all of these towns. And it's interesting because if, if you were to read through all the details, and if you do, good job, if you were to read through all the details of all 12 tribes, you would find, and you can look up maps, and if you've got one of the big thick study Bibles, you can find in the back, you know, there's after the 66 books, then there's the last book called Maps at the end of a lot of the, a lot of the Bibles. You can find one that shows you the little pictures of how this land was divided up, and it's color-coded, and it's really neat. But the Levites didn't get a specific piece of land. They didn't get like a, you get this circle. Rather, what they got was 48 cities scattered throughout the entire nation, which is really interesting because at that time, the worship of God was centered primarily at the tabernacle, this big tent that moved around. And we're not that far away from the Israelites deciding that they're going to build a temple, which becomes the center place for worship of God. And we know that throughout Israelites' history, worship was something that often happened in one central location. You read the New Testament and you hear stories about how the temple in Jerusalem was just the center place of Israelite religious life. But here we see a completely different picture. God puts his priests, the Levites, scattered throughout the entire nation, in and amongst every single tribe. It's like he wants Israel to remember that worshiping him is not something that we can only do in one singular central place, but rather God wants his presence remembered everywhere. It's like, it's like God is needing the stories and the religious life and the worship of him. He's needing it right into the dough. He's weaving it right into the fabric of the entire nation. God wants his, his goodness to be remembered in the physical division of the land. God wants his goodness and presence to be remembered in the writing of the law code. God wants worship of him and the stories of his name to be told, not just at one time and in one place, but sort of woven into the whole culture. I was, you know, I'm reading these, I'm thinking about these, and I want to come back to my reflections on pedestal moments. See, Israel had some pedestal moments, right? Israel had had some moments that, man, if I was there, you better believe, I'm going to, like, if I was there with the whole pillar of fire thing, like, those pillars, huge, and it just sort of moved, and we just follow it, man, God, give me one of those pillars again, I just want a pillar, but I don't have a pillar, but man, if I was there, I'd have put that moment on a pedestal. I would have had a picture of the pillar on my desk in the office. And I'd have, you come into my office, I'm going to tell you about that picture every time. Here's, so Israel knew what it was to have pedestal moments. Some of, their, some of the people here, their parents saw Mount Sinai, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the crossing of the Red Sea. These people saw the crossing of the Jordan River. These people had just seen God give them this land that he had promised them. They know these pillar moments. And that's great. Because we continue to worship the God of these stories. But here's, 
Here's the risk I think that comes when we overemphasize pillar moments. There's, there's a risk that comes when we tell these few stories over and over. The risk is that we can start to, to believe, we can start to inadvertently, I think it starts subconsciously, um, we can start to, to internalize this idea that maybe God only works through those pedestal moments, right? This, this moment when Ken gave me this little piece of paper and it was just like, oh, and I, and I think God spoke to me in that in a pretty powerful way and whether or not I've articulated, I don't know, but I, but I, but I felt it was, oh, that was such a good moment. And you know what? A lot of the rest of my life is just sort of boring. It's kind of dull. Like, I'm not sitting on the banks of the Rio prayerfully wrestling with some big inner thing. And, and I don't have a mentor who's walking to me and like, oh, I'm going to give you that. And I, you know, a lot of the rest of my, you know, I change poopy diapers and I cook pancakes for breakfast. And, and if I'm not careful, I can start to think that maybe God works here and God did something there. But all the rest of my life, I don't know, I guess I just have to get through it. Anybody here ever found yourself comparing those pedestal moments and saying, well, that was when God was really at work, but then, man, I guess, I don't know. When I read Joshua 15 through 22 and I read the way God works through geography and border, drawing the borders and writing legal codes and naming specific cities for the Levites, what I, what I find myself thinking is God's trying to remind his people that God is working in every moment. I, it doesn't matter how boring or mundane or seemingly insignificant or, I mean, heck, even preaching through those three stories right now, like, it, it, I felt a little bored, even though I'm excited about it. Like, it's, it's not shiny, highlight, exciting stuff, but it is exactly what God was doing in the lives of his people. He was saying, just remember, I am present in every part of your life. One of the ways we say that around here is we think God is present and with us. God's doing something in us and through us every day, everywhere. Uh, you know, so the sort, of the, sort of the practice then becomes, not that the pillar is bad, not that the things we put up on the pedestal are bad, but to not let them distract us from the fact that the same God who did something great there is every bit as present with us right here and right now. Which brings us, as always, to your move. What is it that we are going to do about that? Here's my suggestion, I think. If you've got in your head some of these pedestal moments, I keep saying pedestal and pillar, pedestal moments. Um, I don't in any way want to um, downplay the significance of those moments in your life. But I know that for me, I have run the risk of letting that become too important and distracting me from the God who is in fact there when I'm cooking pancakes and my kids are doing imaginative play or I'm raking the leaves or doing any of the other seemingly mundane stuff. So maybe, maybe the spiritual practice for us is to be people who knock down these pillars. Not to say that those moments aren't important, but because it's almost like 
what looks to us like a bit of a mess that we call our life sometimes, right? What looks to us like a little pile of maybe seemingly insignificant moments or days or activities is in fact exactly where God is present and active and with us. Here's a question I'd like you to ask. Where do you not expect to find God? I expect to find God in these moments where it's like this, right? When, in the, when I'm in the beautiful spot and I'm with the right people and everything. Like, I expect to find God here. But if I'm honest, I don't expect to find God when I'm changing a poopy diaper. I just, I, like, call me crazy. But that is a place that, A, has happened. It's been an experience I've had a number of times in the past 11 years of my life, right? Uh, that B, I am praying, Lord, please let these stop. I'm ready to be past that. But we're not there yet. But that's fine. And now I'm talking, you know, we don't need to go there. But we've all got these moments where, if we're honest, we would never presume to meet God there. The Israelites might never have presumed to meet God in long pages of geography or in the writing of legal codes or in which cities the Levites get. But in fact, that's exactly where God met them. What are the moments that you just pass over, discarding, laying aside, saying, I know God's present and active, but clearly he's not doing anything here. What would it look like to take those moments and say, maybe God is in fact present and at work in all of the details of my life. He's right there. No matter how seemingly mundane or tedious or insignificant they are. What would it look like to learn that the moment we discover that God is present everywhere, the moment we discover that God is present everywhere, we actually can discover, you can go to the next slide. Um, oh, I, I skipped something. The screen went black, so I don't know what my next slides are. Sorry about that. Um, there's this psalm, and, and it said, uh, that's all right, you can go to the psalmist. Uh, you make known to me the way of life. In your presence, talking about God, in your presence is the fullness of joy. Kind of like we prayed at the beginning, like David shared that prayer. Um, joy is not pretending like sorrow isn't there. Joy is not ignoring the, the challenging or painful or difficult or complicated things of life. But joy is realizing that the moment I discover that God is present everywhere, I can actually discover that joy is present everywhere. Because, as uh, the ancient writer Nehemiah wrote, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's the presence of God which gives us joy. It's the presence of God which gives us strength. It's the, it's the joy of the Lord that doesn't show up only in the absence of difficulty, but it shows up as our strength in the midst of literally every moment of our lives. Uh, I'd going to invite you to pray with me, and I'm going to read um, a prayer, and I'm going to have the worship team come back up now, and I'm going to read a prayer, and after each um, stanza of the prayer, I'm going to invite you to say out loud with me this refrain, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Would you say that with me right now? The joy of the Lord is our strength. As we pray, here's my challenge. We're going to go into communion in just a second. Um, as we pray and as you hear, see, hear some of the images in prayer and as we say some of the words of this prayer, um, 
let them call to mind any part of your life that you've maybe thrown aside and said, I don't know if God would ever show up there. Pray with me. We'll say the refrain together. God, we come to you, our creator, and we pray. When the world expects sadness, help us, creator of light, to look for pockets of joy. When the world is overwhelmed by darkness, give us eyes to see those little delights. When the world is caught up in sensationalism, help us speak of the hidden wonders we've discovered, holding them up for others to see. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In the sacred stillness of the early morning, a quiet moment in the sun, small children laughing on scooters, trees bursting into bloom and lilies opening at the corner bodega, these small joys reveal the truth of the world we live in. The joy of the Lord is our strength. No, there is not peace everywhere. All pain has not been removed, but there are still people returning home. Voices that pray. Moments of forgiveness. Signs of hope. We don't have to wait until all is well to celebrate the glimpses of your kingdom at hand. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And we don't just have to hear these words to know them. We've actually been given by Christ a reminder. See, because on the night he was betrayed, one of the worst and most excruciating moments of his life, on that night, he was eating with 12 of his closest friends and he took some bread and after he broke it, He gave thanks and he said to them, he said, I'm breaking this bread because it's an image, it's a symbol of my body being broken for you. It's an image of the fact that in the midst of brokenness, God is creating new life. I encourage you to take the bread and know that the body of Christ has been broken for you you. And again, in the exact same way, in the same room, with the same people, on the same night, after supper, he took a cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant, a promised relationship. And it's a covenant I'm making in my blood. Christ invites us to consider this. No matter how hurt or hard, or broken, no matter what kind of sin, or oppression, or bondage is showing up in your life, no matter what moments you feel like you might want to throw away because there's no way God could show up, in the blood of Christ, you know there is life. The forgiveness of all sins, and the promise of resurrection. The the blood of Christ has been shed for you. Knowing 
that we have the life of Christ in us, we know that his joy may be found in any and every moment of our lives. And so we continue to pray. put the next slide up on the screen. Let us not deny sadness, but transform it into fertile soil for more joy. Let us not deny the darkness, but choose to live in the light. Cynics seek darkness wherever they go, but joy is the mark of the people of God. And let's say with joy, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Help us discipline ourselves to choose joy, for the reward is joy itself. Help us renew our minds until they default to joy and not fear, for there is so much to frighten us. Help us believe that the light can be trusted, for there is so much darkness to mislead us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And would you stand with me and read the whole last verse together? Jesus. You are both the man of sorrows and the man of complete joy. Help us to hold both sorrow and joy in the ways you've shown us. Help us to remain in your love so that your joy may be in us and our joy may be complete. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen.